May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. You can be seated. Well, I want to continue on this morning where we left off last week, which was in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And here Paul is saying to these Corinthians who had come from a pagan background and a pagan lifestyle that um, they need to live their life for God because he has given them new life. And uh, remember that that beautiful verse, that beautiful um, phrase in, in verse 11. He says, after describing a lifestyle that's not consistent with the kingdom of God, in verse 11, he says, and such were some of you, but you've been washed. You've been sanctified. And you have been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So because God has done this in your life, washed you, cleaned you up, sanctified you, justified you, made you right in the eyes of a holy God. Therefore, live your life in a way that honors Him. And here in this passage, in verses 12 through 20, he really focuses in on the area of sexual behavior. Glorifying God in this area of your life. Now, he's writing to a a culture, he's writing to a a church that's in in a very sexually permissive culture. The city of Corinth was known for sexual permissiveness. Outside the city, just outside the city, on a hill outside the city, was a temple to the goddess of love, Aphrodite. In that temple was a thousand temple prostitutes. Many of them young girls, many of them slaves. This was a port city, the city of Corinth, so sailors and tradesmen were coming in and out of the city. And so, what was going on in the temple was big business for the city of Corinth. One of the reasons why it was a wealthy city. And this, going to the temple where the prostitutes were, was seen by many people as just normal behavior. Acceptable behavior. And Paul, the apostle, says to these new Christians, it's not acceptable for you. You've been given new life. You have a new way of walking in this life. Honor God with your body. Now, we don't live in a city with a temple dedicated to the goddess of love. But the spirit of Corinth is still alive and well. In our city. In our nation. And throughout the world. And what the world says is normal sexual behavior. So much of what the world says is normal, acceptable behavior. God says, not for you. Not for you as a Christian. As we said last time, God is the one who designed sex. God is not surprised by it. (laughs) And God gave this as a gift to us to bless us. But he designed it and he has put boundaries around it so it could be used to promote blessing and flourishing. And so there are boundaries around this gift. 
And we do live in this culture that is hypersexualized. Uh, in, the, in the year 2010, the American Academy of Pediatrics put out a study, a report, on the influence of sexual permissiveness, shall we say, on teenagers and young children. Here, here are some of the findings of this report. It was meant to be a, a wake-up call to parents. Uh, this report reported that the uh, online porn industry is a $1 billion industry, $1 billion a year. 75% of TV shows, primetime TV shows, and I think now we would include streaming shows, 75% of TV shows show sexual content. Only 14% of those show talk about responsibility and risk as it relates to sexual behavior. And talk of sex occurs eight to ten times per hour on primetime TV. We are awash in this. And we need to hear then what the Scripture says to us as Christians about how to navigate in this culture. How to live in a way that pleases the Lord in this culture. What this means for us, what this means for our children, what this means for our grandchildren. And people we have influence with. And so uh, I want to look here, this very simple message today, why Paul or what Paul says about why we should flee from sexual immorality. And then we'll talk about application. So if you want, just go ahead and, and look back at that section. This is on page 10 in your bulletin. And we'll just talk about the reasons Paul gives here that we ought to, as Christians, glorify God in our body and flee from sexual immorality. And not just, we could extrapolate here, not by just what we do, but also in our mind, the life of the mind, fleeing from sexuality, uh, sexual immorality as well in our thought life. But here's what he says. I want to pick it up at verse 13 at the, the end of that verse. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. As Christians, Christ has a claim over all areas of our life. His authoritative call comes to us, like to the disciples that we read about in the Gospel reading, come, follow me. They left everything to follow Him. The call of the Lord to follow Him is a claim over every part of our life, including what we do with our bodies. Our bodies belong to the Lord. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And then in verse 14, he says this, God raised the Lord and he will also raise us up by his power. So our bodies, Christians, our bodies are destined for resurrection. Our bodies are destined for an eternity where we will love and worship and serve God with the other saints in glory. That's the destiny of our body that gives great dignity to our body. And so I think what Paul is saying here is your body belongs to the Lord. Your body has this great destiny. Therefore, live your life now in your body in a way that fits. In a way that's congruent with this dignity and destiny. There's a scene in a novel by Graham Greene. And uh, in this novel, he has a character named Sarah. And Sarah goes into a Catholic church in this scene, and she is struck by all the statues and, and the crucifixes 
of Jesus and and the statues of the saints. And she's disturbed by all this embodiment, the body of Christ and, and the saints. She's disturbed by this because she says, I want to escape the human body. I want to believe in a vague God who's like a vapor, and someday I will become a vapor too. Why? She says, so that I can escape myself forever. So I can escape myself forever. Because she has, de- she has done some things in her body, with her body, that she would like to forget. She wanted to escape being a body. But God's created us as a unity of body and soul. We can't escape ourselves. We can't escape the body. The good news is that God has washed us, cleansed us, sanctified us, and justified us, and set us on a new path of life so that we're fit for heaven. But our bodies belong to Him, and our eternal destiny is an embodied existence in heaven. And so we ought to use, this is what Paul's point is, use your body in a way that fits this eternal destiny and this dignity that you have. The second thing that Paul says here, he reminds us that our bodies are a dwelling place for the Lord. That our bodies are a dwelling place for the Lord and a temple of the Holy Spirit. Amazing thought coming from Paul, who was raised in this Jewish tradition where the temple is a, is a physical building. And Paul is saying, now the Holy Spirit resides in you. And Christ dwells within you. You are a a, a member of Christ. He says, listen to what he says. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? He's saying to those Corinthians who are tempted to go back up the hill to the temple like everybody else is doing. Wait a second. Don't you know who you are in Christ? Don't you know that you're united to Christ? Don't you understand the union and the connection that you have with Christ? Shall you take the members of Christ and then make them members of a prostitute? It's unthinkable. He says, never. Our bodies are also a temple of the Holy Spirit, which is a gift of God. So we're in union with Christ. The Spirit dwells within us. And Paul says, when it comes to the act of physical intimacy, sexual intimacy, the two become one flesh, quoting from Genesis. The two become one flesh. Physical intimacy unites us with another person. And the question is, is that union a holy union? Is that union a union that God blessed, that God designed? Is it according to God's design for sexual intimacy? God's design is between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. And so Paul wants us to think about how we are united to Christ at a very deep level, how the Holy Spirit dwells within us, and how physical intimacy unites us with another person. And we live in a culture today that, that says it's, in some circles, it's just sex. It's just a natural act. Lewis Smead's a Christian Ethicist says this, there's no such thing as casual sex, no matter how casual people talk about it. No such thing as casual sex, no matter how casual we want to make it. 
He says, nobody can go to bed with somebody else and leave his soul parked outside. This is what Paul is getting. Don't you know the, the unity that happens here? You're united to Christ. You give your body to somebody else. You're giving yourself to somebody else and yourself belongs to the Lord. So is it a holy union? Your body is a dwelling place for the Lord. What would happen if we came in here some Sunday and we found that somebody had toppled over the communion table and written graffiti on the walls and taken our Bibles and our prayer books and strewn them across the floor? Uh, Well, we would be pretty ticked. We would be rightfully upset, not only because our property had been defaced, but because of the significance of this place. This is a sacred place. This is a place set apart for the worship of God. This is a place where when we worship the Lord together, the Lord dwells here. And so we would see this as an act of, of sacrilege against the God who is worshipped here. And Paul is saying sexual immorality desecrates the dwelling place of the Lord, which is now your body. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. So you belong to the Lord, including your body. Your body is a dwelling place for the Lord. And then he says at the end of this, remember the price that was paid for you to belong to the Lord. In verses 19 and 20, he says, you are not your own, not as a Christian, You're not your own. Why? Verse 20. You've been bought with a price. Where where did this happen? Where were we bought with a price? At the cross. At Calvary. What was the price that was paid for us? The blood of the Son of God. The blood of Jesus. So when I think about Jesus suffering for me in my place, I think about oftentimes... That passage in Isaiah 53, the prophecy of the coming servant of God. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that we deserve. And by his stripes we're healed. He was wounded in his innocent body. That never committed sin for the transgressions that I have committed in my body. He was bruised for my iniquity. His back took the stripes that I deserved because he is the innocent lamb of God. But out of love and obedience to the father, he came to pay the price. Jesus said, I've come to give my life as a ransom for many. What is a ransom? A ransom is a payment. A ransom is a payment that is made on behalf of somebody who is held hostage and they don't have the resources to make that payment. They can't get out of the predicament that they're in apart from the ransom that has to come outside. If you were ransomed and held hostage, if you were held hostage and somebody paid the ransom, you would be eternally grateful to this person who set you free. By the blood of Jesus, we are set free from the judgment of God and we are set free from the enslaving power of sin and we are set free for a new kind of life, a life that can display the glory of God. We have been bought with a price. A price that paid the way for us to be washed and sanctified and justified and to have this new life. So, friends, when we're tempted in this area 
And I think we're tempted in this area from adolescence all the way up to the end. I think the battle, especially in the mind, continues on. But when we're tempted in this area, I think it's important for us to remember the cross of Christ. The price that was paid for us and the fact that we belong to him. So let me just uh, close here with a couple points of application. Let's not lose confidence in what God tells us about this area of life, no matter what we're hearing from the culture. Let's not lose confidence in the clear teaching of Scripture in this area of life. There's a lot of ideology floating around in our culture that's based on half-truths at best or lies and out-and-out misinformation. And I can only call it propaganda. There's a lot of propaganda in this area that we get from our culture. The cliches and the images filter up through this, through this, uh, or as, as part of this, this propaganda. I'll give you an example of this. In the 1960s, which was a little bit before my time, but some of you lived through it, so you know what I'm talking about. The 1960s was supposed to be the decade of free love. And that ideology of free love was built on partly built on the work of a lady named Margaret Mead. Remember that name? Margaret Mead was very popular from, I guess, the 30s through the 40s and 50s. And sort of her work started laying the groundwork for this idea that, you know, we can be a culture of free love and it will be no problem. We can cast off our puritanical past. And uh, that was based on some research that she did on the island of Samoa. She went to this island and she said, on this island, the adolescents can basically, as they would say today, hook up with whoever they want. And there's no guilt and there's no shame and there's no real consequences. And then when they get older, they can they can marry and settle down. But the adults let them do this. And it's wonderful. This island paradise of free love. She wrote this up in a book. She talked about it in interviews. She was a columnist for a while in, I think it was Red Book. So she was, and our culture was lapping this up because it rationalized sexual permissiveness. Well, then a researcher goes back to this island of Samoa and says, wait a second. We didn't get the full picture here. The suicide rate for adolescents on this island was much higher than in the United States. The suicide rate for adolescents was related to guilt and jealousy over some of these things that she was lifting up and saying, no guilt, no jealousy, no problem. Uh, Secondly, this researcher said, as he studied the culture and knew the language much more, had better facility with the language than she did, he said, um, sexual permissiveness is not prized in this culture. What's prized in this culture is virginity. That is a very high standard here. And she completely overlooked this. And yet, it came out in the press and it came out through various networks and it became part of that cliche. Everything's relative and the problem with sex is the guilt that we have about it that we've inherited from the Puritan past. It was built on misinformation. 
So, so friends, we have to be very critical when we hear messages that suggest that what we believe <clears throat> is not rational and not normal. We have to be very critical and measured against the Word of God. Another way that the media shapes our values in this area is through stories. Stories. Stories affect our emotions and emotions affect our beliefs. And I heard a talk about this by a guy named Glenn Harrison, a psychiatrist and academic. He, he said stories work in very subtle ways on our emotions. Because usually in a story, think about a movie or TV program, there's no room for a counter view. And so he says stories trade on empathy with a character. And once we empathize with a character, it's very difficult for us to reject their behavior. And one of the key ways today that we empathize with the character, or one of the key ways that a storyteller will get an audience to empathize with the character is to give that character victim status. That is a key move in the stories we hear today. Again, we're learning our values through stories. And not so much through reason. And once empathy is established with the character, an alternative view about their behavior is considered cruel and harsh. And that's the way our morals are taught today. And of course, God made us emotional beings, made us to connect with other people at an emotional level. And of course, of course we should empathize with victims of hatred and violence. But God also gave us reason. God also has given us his word. And so we have to think critically and we need to teach our children and grandchildren to think critically about the stories that are being told. What's being left out? What's another view? What, what are the consequences here of this kind of behavior? What about sickness and disease and what happens to children and to cultures who go down this path? Who knows where our culture is headed in this area of life? I just saw an article yesterday from The Guardian about polyamorism. And this couple, this married couple, had invited a third man into the marriage because they thought this would work better for them. And they talked about ethical non-monogamy. That might be something that's coming down the pipe here. We have got to stop and think critically and biblically about our culture in this issue. The spirit of Corinth is very much alive and well in the stories that we are being told. And then my second point of application, not just think critically and be really wary of the stories that are being told and, and filter it through God's design for marriage. But then the second point of application is just very simply what Paul says here, in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Flee from sexual immorality in your actions and in your thinking. This is a continual imperative form of the verb, meaning this is something you need to be vigilant about and continue to do. Flee from sexual immorality. Don't put yourself in a position where you can cross a line. Watch out what you're thinking about. Watch out what you're looking at. Make it a habit to flee from sexual immorality. And, uh, you know, when I preach a sermon like this, it's not necessarily easy. <laughs> it's not coming, friends, from a place of self-righteousness or condemnation. It's coming from a place of concern. As a parent, concern 
what's happening to our culture, what's happening in the church, and concern for the, for the souls of people can be corrupted so easily in this, in this area of life. So God has shown us His goodness and His glory in Christ. And now He has washed us and sanctified us and justified us to show something of His glory and goodness in this broken world. And that's our call. By God's grace, may we glorify Him in this area of life. Amen.